Hi, my name is Luca Kawabata and welcome to Noteworthy. From around the world to UBC Opera and on to the world of medicine, Ali Reza Mojibian, someone all of you listening know very well, is showing what it means to find new ways of pursuing music as well as their other passions. Master of music while working in the medical sector in the middle of a pandemic. He is an infinitely skilled technician, the visionary behind this podcast, and I'm so happy to say a very good friend of mine. Welcome, Ali. How are you? I am doing great. I'm going to quote um, Aaron Durant here and say that's one of the kindest uh, introductions I've ever had, and it feels really weird to be on the other side of the microphone, uh, but I'm also very excited. So yeah, I'm good. I'm doing great. Well, welcome to the other side of the interview table. <laughs> So just to uh, do some introductions, if I'm correct, you were born in Iran. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience and how you found yourself in Canada? I was seven when my family and I immigrated to Canada. Um, Actually, October, we celebrated our 21st year in Canada. So it's, it's been quite a while. You know, uh, people immigrate from their homelands for various reasons, uh, some out of necessity and some uh, out of uh, just wanting to explore a new avenue of life. My parents were of the second camp um, and they wanted to move to Canada to create a better life for uh, themselves and for my brother and my and myself. When we moved, we moved from Tehran, where I was born, to Ottawa. And we spent about eight years in Ottawa before moving to Vancouver. I mean, the immigrant story, especially in a country like Canada, resonates with all immigrants, regardless of where they're from. It's a story of saying goodbye to people you love and people you want to uh, hold near and dear to you, but you make choices in life to better yourself. And I guess immigration is is the biggest way of... Um, changing one's direction in life. It's amazing to hear you talking about that. It's something that's personal to me as well. Having been born in Japan, obviously my my story is a little bit different having um, a mother who's from Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's amazing uh, that these kind of conversations are being had right now, especially in how they impact the art form, which we love in opera. I'm curious, was your first exposure to music in Iran through uh, traditionally Persian music? Um, yes, uh, music has always been a part of my life. My uncle on my mom's side, he plays like seven or eight instruments. He's, he's a physician, but he plays seven or eight instruments. And so when I was growing up, uh, there was always music from traditional Iranian drums to the centaur, to the sitar, like everything being played around me. My mom has a, uh, wonderful voice that shocks me to this day. Sometimes I find her singing along to a song and she does like incredible runs. And I'm like, wait, what, how, what? Uh, and it just catches me off guard. Um, and yeah, music has always been, uh, was always a part of my upbringing. There are videos of me at, I think it was two or four, uh, with traditional Persian music in the background of me waving my hands, having no idea what conducting was, but just waving my hands to the beat. And there's another video of me playing some sort of instrument. And uh, to be honest, um, with regards to singing, when I was uh, younger, I used to speak really, really loudly. And my mom used to say, tone it down a bit. You sound like you've swallowed a microphone. 
Um, and I think that's a compliment. <laughs> it is. I mean, as an, going on later in life, that is a hundred percent a compliment. But there was a lot of music in my life growing up, and um, I feel incredibly blessed to have had that experience. Especially since, I mean, traditional Persian music was a huge part. But then my parents were both um, raised, uh, as with many parents of my generation, Iranian parents of my generation, before and after the Iranian Revolution. So my mom's favorite uh, singer was Brian Adams and still to this day is Brian Adams. So there was a lot of Brian Adams in our household. Uh, there was a lot of uh, Celine Dion and so on. And that when we moved to Canada, that was just uh, expanded on <laughs> to the 10th degree. And when exactly did you start with the the art of the vocalism? <laughs> um, I didn't start that until I think it was about 10 or 11 because I started piano when when we moved to Ottawa, a couple of years after moving to Ottawa. And my father's best friend at the time, he had a massive record and CD collection. And every time we went to his home, I just had a field day going through his collection. And that's where I was introduced to uh, Sting, introduced to Pink Floyd, to um, uh, Genesis, to uh, Queen, um, everyone. But then one time when we were over there, he was playing uh, a CD of the greatest hits of the Rat Pack. And I just, something with, uh, I had no idea who Sinatra was at the time, Frank Sinatra. And I was just like, I need to listen to this more. And so I asked him if I could borrow the CD. I borrowed the CD, brought it home. I came across Sinatra's My Way and decided for some reason to start listening to that and um, singing that in the shower. I got to say that the Rat Pack is why I started singing. It was just easy. It was it was rather comfortable to sing. I had developed some level of Kermit the Frog voice when I eventually met um, Roloff, my teacher, uh, which he beat out of me <laughs> lovingly. Um, but it, it, the, the whole my my vibrato, the core of my sound uh, came comes from the Rat Pack. That's amazing to hear. And I've heard you sing um, some more pop music and especially I'd, I'd say that you're an amazing crooner. Thank you. So speaking of my way, um, how did you transition from that to singing more classical music or did it just kind of fall into your life? It was another accident. It was, again, another happy accident on YouTube. Um, there was a montage of uh, Frank Sinatra singing My Way alongside Pavarotti singing My Way. Back in the 90s, uh, Pavarotti used to do uh, benefit concerts with called Pavarotti and Friends. He would invite uh, superstars from all over the world, Whitney Houston, Brian Adams, um, Michael Bolton, er everyone to sing with him on stage and one of the recordings on YouTube was a montage of him singing My Way with the then deceased Frank Sinatra. And I just heard Pavarotti's voice and I was like, um, I, I want to do that. And then that video led to the video of him singing Nessun Dorma in, at the Met. And I was like, what? Without a mic, What? I, it was a combination of being able to sing like that and hearing the thunderous applause of the crowds afterwards. And I just went into my little practice room, AKA the shower and uh, started imitating Pavarotti. And then I remember telling my parents, 
come, I mean, we were hanging out one day and I said, telling my parents, Hey, I think I can sing. And I mean, my parents are nothing but supportive. And uh, I mean, everything I've accomplished has been a great debt to their support. But at the time, when I said I, I could sing, they were both like, yeah, everybody can sing in the shower. But when we moved to Vancouver, my parents helped me find the Vancouver Children's Bach Choir. And the year I auditioned for the Bach Choir, Children's Choir, it was the final year that Maestro Bruce Pollen was directing. And Bruce was, at the time, also the director of choral studies at UBC. And we go into the audition room, uh, into the hall, and I'm literally auditioning in front of all these other kids and dying because I'm so nervous. And after my audition, he comes to my parents and is like wagging his finger saying, how dare you not get voice lessons for this boy? And kind of caught my parents off guard. We ended up asking him if he would be willing to teach me. And he said he couldn't at the time. We didn't know that it was actually his final year with the choir. He was retiring. And that's when he introduced me to Professor Emeritus Rulof Ustwood, who was uh, assistant professor of voice at UBC at the time. Speaking of UBC, that is where we met. Yeah, it is. And in our time together there, we worked on countless projects together, both musically and otherwise. Uh, do you have any standout experiences or performances from your time there? Well, in order to tell that story, I'm going to start a little bit earlier. So after I met Ruloff, I started studying with him. This was when I was 16. And one night after my lesson, he said, hey, the next time you come in and the evening, UBC Opera has a dress rehearsal. You should come with me. And I'd, up until that point, I'd never seen an opera before. And he, after our lesson, we went to the Chan Center and we sat down and that was the first time I got introduced to UBC Opera. And that was just, again, another click to, yes, I want to do this. Long story short, in the next couple of years, um, I was introduced to the UBC Children's Opera and got to uh, audition for Richard Epp. Uh, the wonderful Richard Epp and Nancy Hermiston for Optica Delusions, this musical thing that was happening. And that's when Nancy asked me to audition. The UBC Opera Program holds a special place in my heart because that's where uh, Ali became Ali in a lot of ways. The first two years I, would, I was in school, I didn't, um, I wasn't participating in any of the operas. I was trying to focus on on my studies. There were a couple of courses that were harder than I ever anticipated because I, I mean, I really didn't have that much of a musical or especially music theory background when I started. And so my first year really was in my third year where we did um, Cosi Fan Tutte. That was the first opera we did. And that was I was in chorus with that uh, for that opera. And then we did Dialogue of the Carmelites. I was also in chorus in that. And then I got the incredible opportunity to audition for the role, uh, for a role, <laughs> potentially in Carmen. And that's where things really got started because I, I I ended up singing the both the roles of Morales and Don Cairo and Carmen and it what was incredible was that it was so action packed it was six performances in Vancouver four performances in in Wexford at the Wexford Festival in Ontario and four performances in the Czech Republic it was incredible I never imagined that within my first three years of school. I would get to work on two operas where I would be on stage as a different character plus chorus on every other night and get to perform the whole thing 14 times. Uh, I would say that was the first highlight. Is there a particular 
role that you sung that kind of means a lot to you? The role that I sang, the, the two roles that I sang that meant a lot to me uh, were in my final year, um, Chouinard in Bohème and uh, Figaro in The Barber of Seville. But the opera that meant a lot to me was The Consul. We, we did The Consul um, right at the height of the refugee crisis uh, in Syria. And we did a symposium alongside it. And it was it was something else to be able to experience an opera that resonated with a part of my life uh, as as an immigrant. Uh, even though I, I don't have those horrific experiences that the opera portrays, I know of people who have who weren't as lucky as my family was trying to immigrate from uh, from the Middle East. Um, and so, yeah, I would say the two roles were Figaro and Chouinard, and the one opera that will is forever etched in my memory is The Consul. At, at the end of every student's academic career, their time comes for their impending graduation. How was that transition from student life for you? It was one of the hardest two and a half, three years of my life. When you graduate, you don't know the wall, the impending wall that is going to hit you. And and this is this is a warning that you are you are told, but you're not really prepared for it. Where um, once you graduate, you're told that if you don't follow up, things kind of dry up, and this, this is totally true. And every every person has to take responsibility for the amount of effort and push they put into their career after they graduate. So that is definitely a portion of it. But what they don't tell you, what school doesn't prepare you for, is the mental game. And in my case, I was incredibly busy for the seven years that I was in school, uh, both with school and with performances and working in the opera department, that it kind of felt like forced retirement. Uh, For anyone who is graduating, know that you are worth more than what an institution or what a society tells you you are good to do. And the skills you learn in school are highly relatable in other fields. And it's incredible to see what musicians and artists can do in other fields and revitalize other fields that are stagnant. Do you have any sort of coping mechanisms that um, you can pass on to other people that would ease the process? Give yourself time. Give yourself time to appreciate what you have accomplished. And this goes to, this is for every field of study. I just think, especially us as millennials, we grew up in a time period where society was telling us that we're lazy, that we don't do enough, um, that we are perpetually um, wanting more in a society that can only give us so much. And that's not the case. The reality is 99% of us have worked so hard for everything that we have accomplished that the only thing we know how to do is to work hard. We don't learn how to appreciate our accomplishments. Uh, If I can use myself as an example, in my seven years, I had the incredible opportunity of performing in 18 productions and saying 17 roles. That is no joke for a kid who's (laughs) graduating from his master's. But if you don't give yourself the time, which I didn't, If you don't give yourself the time and the space to appreciate what you have accomplished, then nothing you do moving forward 
gives you that passion to move forward. So if I can impart anything is that give yourself time, give yourself space and be kind to yourself and allow things to move at the pace that they were meant to move for yourself. As you were describing your academic career, it made me think of um, how this particular program simultaneously feels like a marathon and a sprint. Mm -hmm. And that sort of environment can get exhausting, even though it is enjoyable. I think uh, transitioning out of academic life, it's that shock of the pace of life changing or that safety net of life changing as well. Uh, Luckily, you were able to sort of uh, find a new avenue and shift your focus to the medical field. How did you feel drawn to that new path coming from music? When I started at uh, at UBC, I actually started um, kind of in a double major track uh, with biology. I ended up letting that go because there wasn't enough time in the world. I I decided that once I graduated um, and had, had given myself a couple months to to really breathe, I decided to do the MCAT for medical school, and uh, that was a year long studying process. I got a far better mark than I ever anticipated, but uh, didn't didn't feel correct in fully applying to medical school. Instead, I started volunteering for different organizations, and one thing led to another. And uh, through those experiences, I was introduced to someone who would eventually end up being my boss, and I had an interview with her. If there is anything you learn at the UBC Opera Program or in school that translates is that you learn how to think and you learn how to uh, think on your feet. So I was, she just threw me right into the the ethics world. Uh, My position is a research manager now for ethics and regulatory matters at St. Paul's Hospital. And our company specifically focuses on respiratory medicine, uh, which funnily enough, again, I got dropped into a field of medicine that very much relates to uh, obviously the lungs and to singing. And so I got to learn about cystic fibrosis, um, COPD, interstitial lung disease. uh, uh, And so it's been an incredible, incredible ride. And the thing that I enjoy the most about my current career path is the primary goal of patient care. Anything and everything that we do at the end of the day has to impact patient care in a better way than what's already in place. And if we can do that, if we're successful at doing that, then then we all win. Uh, the reality is that you have the clinicians who conduct the research on in the field. You have uh, my team and myself who are on, on the background working on the ethics and regulatory matters, making sure things are safe for clinical trials to move forward. And you have this whole field of research coordinators who keep in touch with these patients, meet with them, go through their visits with them and make sure that they're okay. On the musical side of things, uh, I was able to give a presentation on the effects of music and, and the brain and, and potential use of music education in uh, people who are diagnosed early uh, with Alzheimer's or different kinds of dementia and, and to see if it causes neurogenesis, uh, a regeneration of, of new neurons. 
I got to give that kind of a presentation to scientists who scientists and physicians who and and my teams who are very much in a, d- a different uh, mindset and hadn't really thought about that. And so I got I get to learn from them every single day, and I get to impart some of what I've learned uh, from music, from opera. And it's a really incredible opportunity. I'm very curious um, from your unique perspective as someone who has had an inside look at the medical field as well as the musical field and the, the performing arts, how a pandemic like this has affected the society and how, uh, if you see any sort of um, link between um, those two sectors of your life. The reality is that the arts and music are fields that the general population goes to for safe harbor when bad things happen. Musicians and artists across the world relate what their societies are feeling. And we're doing that again. Musicians and artists are doing that again in their own way. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next 10 years. And the point I'm trying to make is that unfortunately, in the societies we live in, Music and the arts are things that the general population goes to when they're in need, and and yet it is the first thing that they cut. Music matters. Arts matter. Artists invest in the future. They invest in the soul of society. I hope that the general population, especially after this experience with the pandemic, learns and understands that the soul of a community is far more important than the short-term economic damage. And and this is not to say that small businesses need to suffer or any other business, that's not my point at all. No one part of society should suffer at the expense of the other. The economies recover, our our lives recover, but if you think about the long-term play, Looking at organizations like Opera in Reach, looking at organizations like Lucky Penny, uh, like Renaissance Opera, like Symphony 21, these are organizations that are expanding what it means to be a musician in in the 21st century. And because of the pandemic, taking a charge in their own futures. In the last six months, especially, I'd say that I have embraced the good things to come out of the social setting that the pandemic has brought. Although there's been so much loss and so much change, um, it has allowed us to have different conversations and open the door for the need for immediate change. And uh, as a little segue, I would like to congratulate you on the success of Noteworthy and all the amazing people that you have brought to the forefront, uh, not only in Canada, but now expanding all over the world, and it just continues to grow. Can you tell us a little bit about how this came about? So the the real story of Noteworthy uh, begins with me being so bored and feeling so creatively locked down during the pandemic that I wanted to do something. I was also by by virtue of all the posts and all the messaging with my friends, seeing that so many friends who are in the business, whether they're uh, instrumentalists or singers who lost two, three, four, five years worth of contracts overnight, that, that, that hit me hard. And I suddenly wanted a way to 
be able to speak to my friends. And this might be the perfect opportunity to shed a more humanizing light on who artists are and what artists do. And so I got this microphone thinking that I was going to record some music on it. And I pressed record one night and I just started speaking into it. I put this intro together and I sent it to our mutual friend, Duncan Watts Grant. Duncan listened to it. And I think it was the day after he sent me a message saying, hey, you don't have to say yes to this. But if you're thinking about starting a podcast, um, I'd love to work on it with you. I couldn't have asked for a better situation. I get to work on this uh, creative project with my best friend. And I wanted to prove to myself as like a proof of concept that this would work. And one thing led to another. And I approached other artists. As I went through these artists, uh, the horrendous murder of um, George Floyd took place. So that pushed me again to wanting to change things and making sure I put in artists from all different walks of life as much as I could, especially as the podcast grew. And suddenly before I knew it, we had finished the first season and I was lucky enough to have three more seasons worth of people waiting for me to schedule uh, a time with them. I'm, I'm hoping that Noteworthy becomes a place for conversation, open and honest conversation without the tuxedos and the ball gowns so that the general public who listen to this can really get to know artists um, and really get to know who they are so that the next time they go into a theater, the next time they go into a concert hall, they don't just see the tuxedo. They don't just see the ball gown that artists and musicians don't get left to the wayside because it's just a form of entertainment. What is next? What is the evolution of Ali Reza Mojibian and Noteworthy Podcast. I'm hoping to expand Noteworthy to a point where it's more hosts than just myself. As you know, Luca, I asked you if you'd like to be a guest host. And so moving forward, there will be more episodes throughout different seasons where you will be the guest host, uh, introducing the audience to incredible artists than you know. And I'm hoping to do that with a couple of other friends who uh, will hopefully agree to be guest hosts and are comfortable doing that. In the long term, I'm hoping to set up a situation that even through the digital world, we can have a roundtable podcast uh, with artists and industry leaders talking about what is next in our industry and just in the arts in general. As I mentioned, there are incredible organizations like Opera and Reach and Renaissance Opera that are bulldozing the path forward. And it's just so heartwarming to see what they're able to do, what they've been able to do even during a pandemic. We can create a space for these organizations to come talk to the general public and to get them interested and to get them moving on endeavors like this and move it outside of the circles of artists and musicians. It's been amazing talking with you, Ali. I want to thank you for your time and for your energy here today. And I'm excited for all that 2021 has for both of us. I am very excited too. Thank you so much for doing this, Luca. I have enjoyed being on this side of the microphone far more than I expected to. So thank you for making it a warm and inviting place. I appreciate it. 
As I mentioned, moving forward, we hope to bring you more stories and conversations through the perspectives of other exciting hosts and their guests. Duncan and I are very excited for what 2021 has in store, and in the coming weeks as we bring our third season to a close, we look forward to sharing with you our plans for the year to come. If you are one of our listeners, or if you're a new listener, remember to subscribe, like, and leave us a comment on Apple Podcast. Additionally, if you know of friends and family members who might not be artists, but might enjoy Noteworthy, please share it with them. And as always, thank you for listening.